I'm journalist Michael Schulder, and on this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. My name is Carrie Kaufman. And sometimes I have big names on this show. You are not a big name. I mean, I have a big name, but I'm a big girl being 6'2". And that would make me large in those circumstances. As we approach the peak of March Madness, Carrie Kaufman, a veteran of Duke University's Blue Devils basketball team, shares her personal story of a woman who was basically born into basketball at a time when girls were not really expected to play the sport. I grew up uh, one of four daughters, the second of four, to a three-time NBA All-Star. 6'8", center, which probably would be short by today's standards. Do you remember a few things he might have said to you that stuck? Oh, I do. Suck it up sissy would be one. (laughs) What Carrie Kaufman learned on the court, from her days as the only girl in an all-boys league, through four years on Duke's starting lineup, she now applies to her work with children and adults suffering from chronic and rare diseases. The mission chose her. I'll tell you, uh, nothing like having two out of your four children have supposedly completely distinct rare diseases to make you realize, huh, maybe someone's telling me something. This is where I'm supposed to be. How can the lessons of basketball inform our approach to chronic and rare diseases? That is the higher purpose of this Wavemaker March Madness special. Carrie Kaufman, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Thank you, Michael. I'm excited to be here today. Looking forward to uh, speaking with you. Give us your self-introduction. I have had many roles in life uh, from an NCAA uh, women's basketball player, professional basketball player, uh, rare disease advocate, and I have a real passion for helping people that are living with chronic and rare diseases um, leverage their their abilities uh, that they have um, to overcome. Clearly. To our audience, we're going to be covering a lot of ground today because, you know, the the initial prompt for this, prompting for this, was we're in the middle of March Madness right now. But I've I've wanted to interview Carrie for a long time because of her work with uh, as a rare disease advocate and her personal experience with that. So, um, but we're going to start with basketball. You were on the Duke starting lineup for what five years? Four you, years. You weren't. You weren't <laughs> I actually slow... made the four-year plan. I graduated you, you... in four. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 it was the early nineties. Was it ninety-two to ninety-five? Ninety-one right? to ninety-five. You're 91 right. Ninety-one to ninety-five. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I was looking back at your history a little bit, and here's something: when you guys at Duke were playing, I think it was North Carolina, and the mm. North Carolina college newspaper said mentioned Carrie Kaufman could be hazardous to the Tar Heels' health. Oh, I like the way that sounds. <laughs> Hazardous to the Tar Heels' health. That's great. That's, that's only, the only thing you can uh, say as a Duke, Duke graduate, that you might be hazardous to their health. So that's good. So you're six foot two, which now that's not really considered major height anymore in women's basketball, is it? Well, it's, it's considered tall. Um, I, what was different about my height at the time that I think has now become more commonplace is I was a swing guard forward. I played a three. And at the time, there was only one other player on Virginia, University of Virginia, that actually was a 6'2", 6'3", guard forward. Um, but looking at the women's game now, you see even six five girls stepping out and hitting the three. You know, I think the size has been a women are taller now. I think women now six two is no longer, to your point, exceptional. Um, you know, you've got women of all sizes, including six nine. It's unbelievable to see the kind of height you know, that we're seeing these days. So, so in those days, you said you played guard forward. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, in, typically, the six two woman in college basketball in your day in the early 90s was playing what? Was playing inside, was a center, mainly a center or forward that stayed inside, more or less. Um, I, when I first started playing basketball, I was a point guard. I was supposed to be short, and then I grew, and I decided I didn't want to be inside waiting for the ball. I wanted to have the ball and decide what to do with it. <laughs> so that was my personality. Remember that line, I wanted to have the ball and decide what to do with it. I think that's a clue to why, as you'll soon discover, Carrie Kaufman's drive and resilience can feel so contagious. You'll especially notice it when our discussion turns to the subject of taking on chronic and rare diseases, which are more relevant to all of us than you might imagine. Okay, let's continue with this Wavemaker Conversation, a podcast for the insanely curious. Is it a much higher level game today, or is it basically the same with a few 
improvements at the edges or maybe not improvements. Mm-hmm. You tell me. You tell me when you're watching March Madness. What's your take in terms of, oh, if I were in there today playing the way I was back then, here's what I could do or couldn't do? That's interesting. It's, it's exciting to think about. I think that overall what I can say outside in, um, having played, my goodness, over 20-some-odd years ago, is that the game has accelerated on all levels. Um, I think that um, you see uh, just the speed of the game. Uh, you see the size of the game, the size and the speed together, because a lot of times the you know, bigger girls weren't as quick you know, at the time. And I think now you see even the big girls as fast as some of the guards. Um, not to say you wouldn't have had that 20-some years ago, because you certainly did. But I think what you see is, a, is an upgrade in, across the board, across all five players, versus you may have some, some great talent and pockets across the board. You almost have a, a, a next step level of the game improvement, I think, because of that acceleration. Um, and I, honestly, I think we can attribute it to several factors. I mean, I think that Title IX really made a tremendous impact on the growth um, and, and equity and parity in the game, um, which we can get back to with a Yukon is a whole nother animal we'll, we'll speak to, I'm sure. Um, but I think that we have a whole generation of women now um, that had mothers out there that have played. Um, we also have um, access, I think, to improve training insights and coaches. The women's game is no longer, in my opinion, getting uh, what I would say, not to say that there weren't great coaches 20 years ago, but across the board, we're not getting to be coaches. You were telling me a story you have to share with people because you grew up as a kid, a little girl wanting to play basketball, it was a different time. Tell me about the first time your dad, and then tell me who your dad was, the first time you were taken to join a basketball league. Sure. I grew up uh, one of four daughters, the second of four, uh, to a three-time NBA All-Star. Um, six eight center, which probably would be short by today's standards. Um, Bob Kaufman. He played uh, years ago. Um, he was um, played. I would say the what used to be the Buffalo Braves um, when he was first out of college. He was the third pick in the first uh, first round for the NBA draft uh, to the Seattle SuperSonics. And then he played for Chicago, which is where my older sister, Laura, was born. And then I was born in Buffalo with the Buffalo Braves when he was had his best years, I would say, as a player. And I was born there. And then he was traded to the Hawks um, for his the re- remainder of his years where my, my other two sisters, Joanne and Kate, were born there. Growing up, the, the daughter of a man who had that kind of athletic uh, talent, um, we kind of were, were, we grew up to, you just give everything you have. You give it your best, no matter what it is that you do, um, especially when it came to basketball. And, uh, and, and by the way, let me interrupt you. Did you get that because he would talk about it or you just watched his example? I think it's a combination. I think that you know, when you talk to different athletes or you talk about why people play sports and why they don't, I don't think you can teach competitive spirit necessarily. I th- that's my belief. I think that it's hard to ignite that in someone. You can ignite a fire on some level, but you got to love competition to really put in the time and the effort, I think, to take it to the next level. Um, the question always was, how do you for me, I was competitive in everything. I was kind of that pain in the tail, you know, and I think early on I had to learn to channel that competitive nature. Um, but there was a lot of reinforcement of that desire, if that makes sense. So as a parent, when you see something in your child potentially that you approve or want to kind of, you know, fuel the fire, you kind of, you give that positive reinforcement. And there was always a lot of positive reinforcement about being competitive and wanting to be better. Do, do, you, remember, do, you, remember, do you remember a few things he might have said to you that stuck? Oh, I do. Suck it up sissy would be one. <laughs> you know, it was a joke. I mean, he would just make those, you know, he'd call his girls. Poor guy got stuck with four girls. We joked about that, never had a son. So he'd call us rough, tough cream puffs, you know, at the time. Huh. Um, ironically, one of my first memories of my dad, uh, which I think would not, we have to think about the time, timing of this statement. I don't necessarily agree with it with where we've come, but I was very, very young, probably three or four years old. And the first time I remember throwing a ball, and I threw it to my dad. He threw it back. It hit me really hard in the chest. I mean, I remember being, oh, you know, and he looked at me, pointed his finger in my face. and He said, never throw the ball like a girl. And that stuck with me. And I remember thinking, huh, 
You know, and today we would say, I'm proud of throwing the ball like a girl. But at the time, it wasn't something, if you threw like a girl, it was something that was not a proper technique. It was not an athletic throw. If you were athletic, you were considered a tomboy, not an athletic woman or girl, right? So, I'm sorry, I digress. No, no, so. no, no every digression is welcome. On <laughs> Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Right. But let me bring you back then to that first yes, trip, first the first trip yes. to the basketball court to join Lee. You were yes. how old? I was in third grade, and I was very excited to go play. And we went up to the local uh, sign-up, wherever it was, a little school, and they were going to have a league. And uh, walked up there, and my dad said, well, my daughter would like to sign up for the league. And they said, well, I'm sorry, we don't have a girls' league. It's just a boys' league. And he said, well, where's the girls' league? He said, there's not one. And he said, well, my daughter wants to play. And they said, okay, well, you're going to have to coach because they probably won't pick up a girl on their team. So my dad coached. And we had a really rough year. <laughs> we learned a ton. Um, we were the cootie team because I was the only girl in the whole league. Those poor boys on my team had to endure a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, I guess they had the benefit of being coached by an NBA all-star, which was really super cool. Um, but then they also had to stick with me because I was the girl on the team. Um, but we learned a ton that year. And my dad was tremendously, um, he believed tremendously in, in building a strong foundation of um, the fundamental skills. You know, he was like, wins will come if you can build a strong foundation. So that was his belief system. How did your father, who played at such a high level, what did he teach you and your fellow third graders? Do you remember? I do. Honestly, he broke the game down to the most very basic level, you know, in terms of uh, dribbling, just standing with your dribble, you know, in just right hand, left hand, repetition over and over again, staying close to the basket so you get your form correct. At that time, they weren't actually lowering the, the, the hoops. Now you have a lot of places you go where they lower the hoops to accommodate the size of the kids. They didn't really do that at that time. And so my dad was like, don't worry about getting it all the way to the rim if you can't. I'd rather have you have good form and practice good habits. Um, because that becomes practice becomes muscle memory, and muscle memory is what helps you in the game. And it's only that understanding of proper form, which, by the way, I didn't always have. <laughs> I have to say, I kind of had to do it my own way. It's kind of my own way of rebelling and saying, I can do it this way. Um, but, uh, but I think that I always have that memory of, of having the importance of proper form, and perfect practice makes perfect. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm journalist Michael Shoulder. My guest as we approach the peak of March Madness is former Duke basketball player Carrie Kaufman. Through her company called WellSelf360, she develops wellness programs for companies and as a result of her own experience as a mother of two children born with rare diseases, she is on a mission to leverage their abilities, as she puts it, and to help these individuals in their caregiving circles get the most out of life. And as you'll soon discover, her insights, many of which were learned on the basketball court, provide actionable intelligence, not only for those battling chronic and rare disorders. And as you'll also discover, humor is a key ingredient. So tell me, because here we are in the middle of March Madness, mm -hmm. and that's the, uh, you know, purported excuse for me bringing you on here. And, <laughs> and so tell me, you know, we're looking at this, and I remember I, I spoke to you when we when we saw the brackets, and you said, oh, no, Duke, my team is, is in UConn. <laughs> and the assumption probably was at some point we're not going to be able to beat UConn, or maybe not, and now we're sitting here just for the audience's perspective. So here we are the day after your number two seeded Duke lost to number 10th seeded Oregon. Oregon, yes. And so you just never know who can beat you on a given day, except we've got this dominant force, University of Connecticut, 107-game winning streak. It can't last forever. When you played for Duke, can you remember a time that you played against a team that was because, you know, you, you, you didn't have the winning streak there. You had a good team. Some years were better than others. But do you remember preparing for a game against a team that was supposed to demolish you? How did you get into the frame of mind? And did that frame of mind ever work 
in terms of allowing you to upset another team in a big way? Absolutely. I hate to admit this, uh, but my senior year, it was UNC. Um, They were at the top of the ACC. We were too, um, but they had had an incredible winning streak. Um, I wouldn't say they were supposed to demolish us because when it we were also a strong team, but they certainly were favored to win. Um, and it's always, no matter how how poorly or how well uh, Duke UNC are playing, it always ends up being a good game. Um, the stakes are higher too uh, to, to win those games. So in terms of getting mentally prepared for those kinds of games, um, first and foremost, you, you, you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe that you have been in the preparation um, and the time, um, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, but I believe that um, really studying your opponent, knowing your opponent, knowing how they operate, what their strengths and weaknesses are, how can I uh, diminish their strengths and heighten their weaknesses uh, to understand how I can beat them. Um, so confidence in yourself, understanding what you need to do to leverage your strengths um, to beat them um, is really, really key. And actually, you rely on the coaches to go through a ton of the film. And what they do is they bring you in to look at specific excerpts about what that might apply to you. And then there's typically, at least in my day, it's probably digital now, they would draw up a scouting report. And you would study the scouting report uh, based on the people that you would be guarding. Um, and then you, we'd all discuss this this player, um, this is what he or she does. This, In my case, it'd be a she, right? Or this player, watch out because this is where she's strong. Um, Carrie, you've got to get on the boards because if we have this situation, you need to do that. So it really is directive in terms of how you're going to engage in the game. Not to say that you're not going to just play, but understanding their plays, right? First of all, what are their out-of-bounds plays? Um, are they a running, do they run the running game? Or when do they do that? Um, who are the people who are going to go to in the last minute to shoot the ball? You typically know who they are, um, but a lot of times you discuss what are the best ways to counteract um, what they're going to do uh, and to by achieve. The w- and by the way, so so much information in your head, and and this is an important thing for high school and college students to hear right now, because so much information that you have to just have in your head to recall really almost in your muscle memory. You can't mm-hmm. be thinking too right. much on the court. You can overthink it. <laughs> and yet, you're not just an athlete. You're a student athlete. And you've got so much on the academic side on your plate. How do you compartmentalize it? I mean, how does it? How does the game and the film and everything you're talking about in that locker room not seep through into every moment of your life? Mm-hmm. Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I think that you learn over the years to focus. You have to. And when I was in my studies, I was very much in my studies. Not to say that you don't get distracted, for sure, that does happen, or you're tired because you had to get up at 5.30 and practice that morning, you got something else that night for the game. But you, you do learn that over time, and that's a, that's a very important skill set, I think, for anyone who's multitasking, um, whether in the business world or um, on the court or at school. Um, for me, though, it was um, it's kind of putting your game face on no matter where you are, right? And when it's game time, it's game time. And for me, there was nothing else like game time. And you do rely on that ability to leverage the information you need in that moment, when, I'm look, when I was face-to-face with one of those players, I wasn't thinking about the scouting report. I was just thinking about beating her to the basket. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so whatever it took. And, and there were times when that scouting report would actually be there and it would be helpful. And there are times when I just had to shut it down and be like, i got to have confidence in myself to figure this out. So I need, I need one more basketball story from you, and then sure. we're going to transition into our other subject, which is rare diseases, sure. and how the two connect in some way. Because you were in a, a quadruple overtime game, mm-hmm. and I am going to try to post the picture on my site, wavemaker.me, because I saw it online, and this is you. It might have been in the fourth overtime. I'm not sure. You can tell me. But it was that fourth four-overtime game against Alabama, Alabama. was it? Alabama, yes. You had that game face on. When I saw that, that, that face would have made me back up <laughs> a couple of feet. So tell me about that game and what you learned about life in that game because you really did learn something. Absolutely, I did. Uh, it was 121-120 and uh, four overtimes, like you said. And there were, I believe, 11 NCAA records broken that game. 
And, and by the and, way, this was during March Madness. Yes. It was in the tournament, and it was which round? It was the second round. And we actually, ironically, would have been playing UConn that next round, and Rebecca Lobo was my year. And so I missed my big opportunity to to, to rub elbows and throw elbows with, with her. Um, they went on to uh, to win it. Um, but uh, But in terms of what you learn, and I think this is honestly a, an interesting transition in terms of what we're going to be speaking about, um, because one would say, my goodness, how does this have anything to do with, with life in general, then especially with, with rare disease? In terms of life, I mean, I think so many sports, and for my, my own experience, basketball, it really is a tremendous opportunity to learn about a lot about yourself and how you engage with, with your environment. Um, for four overtimes, you know, it's one thing to to know that you're going to be playing a game, but when you have something that requires so much mental effort and physical effort, um, it is incredibly tiring. And you have to know that every expenditure of energy is working towards that, that goal that you've wanted to do. You want to win, ultimately. Um, but I think what you learn in that situation in particular is how much your team matters. Um, your team is everything. Now, you have your own role, and you can only control what you can do, but having a team around you to give you a high five to keep that momentum going, to pick you up when you fall and you're behind and you might be frustrated and kind of get you out of your own head and say, you know what? Forget that. Let's move on. We made a mistake. If you dwell on your mistakes, like my dad used to always say, you dwell on those mistakes, you're going to make another one. So if we sit there and we wallow in the moment, you've got to refocus, shift your, um, shift your attention, and get back in the game. Put that game face back on, right? And I think that's an interesting metaphor for life in terms of you've got to get back up when you fall down. You've got to build that resilience, build that um, rely on that internal. If you don't have the self-efficacy or confidence, you've got to work on building that, right? Um, because you can't be successful at that level if you don't have confidence in yourself. Even after you've missed four or five shots, you just got to take another shot. If it's your shot, you take it. And you know what? If your shot's not going in, you can always play good defense. You can always rebound. You can always get back on defense. You can always play strong. Always give that effort because at the end of the day, in life and on the court, you want to know when you leave the court, when you leave this life, that you've put it all out there. And I think that's something that I've learned in my own life. Not that you say you fall it every single day, but those are good reminders, I think, for me in terms of I want to know that I've given it, I've left it all on the court. Well, that, that is a perfect transition to what we're going to talk about now, mm -hmm. because uh, as much as you were challenged in mm -hmm. competitive sports, mm -hmm. doesn't even compare to the challenges you've had to experience after sports. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm journalist Michael Shoulder. My guest during the heart of college basketball's March Madness is Atlanta's own six foot two Carrie Kaufman who was a starter on the Duke women's basketball team in the early 90s, played pro ball in Europe for a while, and has taken the strength and resilience and teamwork she learned as a basketball player and through her company, WellSelf360, translated it into helping her own family and many others handle the challenge of living the fullest life possible when your opponent has a rare or chronic disease. Well, just a little bit of context. Uh, Rare diseases are diseases uh, where there's less than 200,000 people in America that have them. So, for example, um, some people are surprised to hear that cystic fibrosis is actually a rare disease. About 35,000 people have it. So that qualifies under the 200,000 uh, person uh, qualification for a rare disease. There are 7,000 rare diseases, um, which actually translates to one in 10 Americans. So when we think about the rareness if you will, of each individual disease as a group, it's actually one in 10 Americans, uh, which is which is so interesting because um, in terms of where, where I am, I just had no idea about that context. Um, in terms of how I got involved myself, um, I basically um, had a son who had a rare disease uh, similar to cystic fibrosis called primary ciliary dyskinesia. Um, he was born a full-term healthy baby boy in a very uh, a fantastic hospital here in Atlanta. And um, he had a little bit of congestion. He was, and they thought, oh, no big deal. We'll just take him back and, and we'll take a look at him. And this is uh, 
24, year, 24 hours after he was born. Um, and they did an x-ray just because it's customary to do that when you go into the NICU, um, uh, the neonatal intensive care unit. And they found out that he had reversed organs, uh, which was obviously, it sounded like sci-fi to me. You know, you think, wow, how could that happen? And, and I said, well, and they said, well, let's just make sure his heart's okay. And if that's the case, we're good, at least for now. And, but there's a chance that he might have this underlying condition uh, called PCD. Um, but don't worry about it. It's just a snotty nose. It, you, if you, the only thing you'll have to worry about is that he'll have a snottier nose than other kids. But it's not life-threatening or anything. Okay, this is what I was told in the hospital. But you kind of know something's not right. You know, when you've just given birth, this is, you know, strapping nine point, you know, nine, at least in my family, he was actually small by our standards. You know, he was nine pounds, four ounces, small in my family, hard to believe with the four girls. Um, but, uh, but after that, long story short, he ended up um, passing away uh, two days later. Um, and they just could not believe that it happened. They had never seen such a strong, healthy boy um, just uh, go so fast. And so they'd never seen anything like it. And I, when they asked me about uh, whether or not I wanted um, an autopsy, I said, I really want you to test him for this underlying disease. And they said, well, that wouldn't be seen as a cause of death. And I said, well, I believe that's what he had. Because while he was in the NICU, we're looking on our, at the time, blackberries and learning this is actually more like CF. They don't really know what they're dealing with. More like um, cystic fibrosis. More, yes. It's more like CF because... With rare diseases, there's not a lot of information out there, and I don't certainly don't blame the doctors. We were a circumstance; we were in the wrong wrong time, you know. And I really believe that he was diagnosed post mortem with this disease. He's the first baby, honestly, first child in the world of being diagnosed um, post mortem with this disease. But um, we can't track what we don't measure, and because they weren't seeing that as something that could have contributed to his death, um, they weren't seeing it as potentially. Uh, a statistic, right, if that makes sense. So after that, I realized, I know when I was in the hospital thinking, he's going to have this disease, what can I do? I honestly went back to my being raised as an athlete and said, I believe that there are things that I can leverage my own experience because I can't cure it. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a researcher. I'm not a clinician. I can't treat it. But I can darn well make sure that my son gets the most out of what he has. And that has stuck with me ever since that day uh, eight years ago. So then what was your, so your next step was obviously to push for the autopsy and you found it. What was the name of the disease again? So we... It's called primary ciliary dyskinesia, PCD. And tell me exactly what it is and how many people, based on our knowledge today, how many people have PCD? Sure. Basically, uh, PCD is one of many diseases that are caused by dysfunction in the cilia that you referred to, the, the hair-like structures that are in your lungs, in your sinuses, ears, and in parts of your brain. And they basically are important because they move like hair, basically. And they move and they, the flow of them gets rid of bacteria and gets rid of um, potential infections. It protects your body from infection. So when your cilia aren't working, um, a lot of our, a lot of our um, community people with PCD would have severe sinus issues, severe um, trying to get rid of get rid of infection in the lung. So you have a lot of, over time, degeneration of the lung tissue, a lot of scar tissue that you created in the ears. And so, um, but we're learning a lot more about the cilia that wave like that, the wave-like motion, but there's also cilia in every red blood cell of your body. So there are two kinds of cilia. And they never used to think that there were similarities with the two, but they're learning there are a lot more crossovers between the two. And is that strictly because of research being done into PCD or is it because of PCD and many other rare diseases that might have something in common with PCD? Potentially. Um, it's actually studied because they're realizing the cilia are far more intelligent than we ever thought they were. The cilia that I talked about that are actually in the red blood cells are actually um, related to um, oncogenesis, so related to cancer, tumor formation, speed of formation. Um, it's also related to several different disease processes, potentially obesity. So we're learning a lot more about cilia. Now, those are the second type. The first type I'm talking about with the, the hair-like structures are a separate type, but they're also now, finally now in biology and basic science looking that they're to learn more about the, the relationship between the two. And, were they and they're called ciliopathies, are these diseases of ciliary dysfunction. So was that being, uh, and Connor passed away how many years ago? Eight. Eight. And so in those eight years, 
have most of these discoveries uh, and incremental expansion of our no- of our knowledge happened in the past eight years, or mm-hmm. were they already studying it and it's just sort of they're they're starting to put the pieces together a mm-hmm. little more? It's a little of both. Um, I think that the technology uh, for um, for a lot of the genetic testing that we're doing, for a lot of the high-throughput genetic, we're actually able to break down and discover new mutations faster than we ever were before. Um, when I first um, became a part of the board of the PCD Foundation, I think there were only nine or ten mutations that they were aware of that caused uh, the disease, and we're up now to in the 30s in terms of under 30s and more, and we're discovering more every day. Unfortunately, PCD is a highly genetically complex disease. There's a lot to know. Um, But the fact that this testing has become better and more available and cheaper, um, we're able to make more discoveries faster. Um, We've also been able to uh, launch a clinical and research centers network, um, which we didn't have one eight years ago. And um, we had a research consortium that we've piggybacked, and now we have 23 around the country and growing. So it's really come a long way. So two things, because you keep on saying we, which which gets back to this idea of the team. Mm -hmm. Yes. You cannot do it on your own. But but, but before we get to that, you were talking about resilience and just, again, the the idea of bouncing back from that. Mm -hmm. You don't bounce back from an experience like that on day one. But but you took action on day one, mm-hmm. you know, and you thought clearly enough to say, no, we want we want to find out precisely what was going on here. How long did it take you to sort of feel your resilience again? Mm. That's a really tough question. Um, I knew that I I think it was not a <laughs> I don't think it was a conscious decision. I felt like my son was here for a reason. And I had to be resilient to deliver on why he was here. Not to say that it's all for him or to save or anything like that, but I want to honor his time here and, and why he was here and why I was such a hardhead about, you know, um, finding out what it was that he had. Because if I hadn't pushed for it, um, then we never would have known, right? Um, so there were two things. One was to honor his his time here in this world and maybe what answers I could help unlock, whether it's for rare disease, for PCD, or for understanding how people can live well despite of, despite and in spite of their illness. Um, because I know for me, had he been here, I would have wanted him to have the fullest life possible. And I felt like if I could spend my time helping figure that out, along with helping the PCD Foundation and the, the amazing team that they have there and the founder, Michelle Mangan, kind of get those things off the ground, if I could play a role in that, that would be tremendous. But I felt like there was a bigger picture thing for me in addition to that was how can we take what we learn and what I would have applied in his life and then how can I transition that to help other people because that I felt like was part of then my mission. Um, and the other thing helping me get out of bed every morning after that was I had Connor had an older sister, you know, and I couldn't be a mom that would sit around in bed and 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 not have her have a life either. So having that, external motivation, even when you don't feel like you have it internally, I think is really critical. And I think that's what a team helps you do. And to have um, a very meaningful um, reason to to get past things. When things get hard, unless you have a meaningful why, it doesn't matter the what you have. you got to have the why. And so you have now devoted your life Mm -hmm. to trying to figure out how to empower these patients Mm -hmm. Not just with the, the uh, with PCD, but with a you know a wide variety right. of 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 these rare diseases. And so, tell me how that's working, and also how your family has evolved because now you have three children. Yes, um, and and one of them is is struggling with a, a rare disorder. Is that yes. is that right? So mm-hmm. so in some ways, you know, who better to handle this than you? Because you really have found the strength. To, to try to approach this in a way that empowers both the person suffering from the disorder and the team around them. Um, so tell me about how that's evolved. Sure, absolutely. Yes, I'll tell you, uh, nothing like having two out of your four, four children have supposedly completely distinct rare diseases to make you realize, huh, maybe someone's telling me something. This is where I'm supposed to be. Um, so yes, my I have a, another son. We have I have three children, um, 
And fortunately, my twins that I had, neither one of them had PCD, uh, but uh, one of my children has a, another condition called Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, which ironically, in a, in a, um, you know, in a family of Sasquatches, it's an overgrowth disorder. So we kind of wondered if we all had it. It's kind of a joke. You kind of, our way of handling things is a lot through humor in my family. So, um, but it's an overgrowth disorder. And um, interestingly enough, in 85% of cases, it happens sporadically, meaning it wasn't something that was passed down from generation to generation, like a PCD or a cystic fibrosis. Uh, PCD is autosomal recessive. But, um, but what's interesting about that is, uh, and this kind of gets into why rare diseases matter beyond a one in 10 Americans. We learn a ton about more pervasive diseases by understanding what's going on in a rare disease. Uh, for example, um, in uh, Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, uh, there's a lot that we can learn about the whole field of epigenetics, uh, meaning um, how our DNA expresses itself. Um, because it wasn't genetic in orientation, it's more of a there's a genetic defect that happens from the external environment, if that makes sense. So these children with Beck with Wiedemann are far more likely, and they don't understand exactly why, to get rare childhood aggressive cancers um, early on. And so by studying why that happens, we can unlock answers to cancers, to broader cancers, right? Um, with cilia, uh, for example, if we can understand how to get those um, cilia that don't function very well, if we could excite them somehow and get them moving again, well, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, a third leading killer in this country, is essentially environmental PCD because basically the environment makes the cilia not function, which is why people with COPD have so much a problem breathing, if that makes sense. So there actually are connections. For the insanely curious, there actually are underlying connections to these more pervasive diseases, which is why the interest in understanding um, these diseases can be, can be really important. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And one of the things that struck me is we, we were speaking recently and you were, you were talking about how you're looking to do more then just uh, maximize the impact of the doctor-patient relationship, but that you know you're looking in, in a sense going back to that fourth overtime, mm-hmm. where I, I remember you telling me it's like you 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 and your team felt like where are we going to find the energy right to go out back out there, which which is very much how many of these patients feel. Yes. And you don't even want to define yourself, your whole identity as a patient to begin with. So what is it that you're trying to do now, I'll call it professionally, Mm -hmm. to improve the day-to-day lives, you know, to help these people who are suffering from these conditions find more inside themselves to just improve the quality of their lives and also the caregivers to do the same? There's several things. Um, I think a ton about this. This might be all I think about beyond uh, getting my kids to their sports events <laughs> or art or wherever they're going. And I think about that four overtime game. When you and I started talking about that, it really made me think more about that specifically. Um, and I think first and foremost, again, I come back to that first thought I ever had starting this process. And when you have that visceral response that keeps coming back, I think it, it makes a lot of sense, at least to me, and that's getting the most out of what you have. And how do you do that? Because it certainly isn't easy. And a lot of times I have to say this, no matter what you do, you can do all the things right. And when you're facing a rare disease or a chronic illness of any sort, it doesn't matter what you you know put in sometimes, you can't always win every battle. And a lot of them are degenerative diseases. you know. So it's not a matter of if, it's when. How do you maximize the time you have and what you're doing? You can have a very full life despite diagnosis and, and despite your diagnosis and your prognosis. And what you were saying before is the first way to think about that is the disease is what I have, not who I am. Um, I think a lot of times um, we forget that uh, because treatment of disease has become so clinical in nature. Um, and I think what m- my goal is to help people understand, not to say that clinical impact and it, dealing with your clinician isn't important because it is. When you're coming, when you talk about chronic disease, rare disease, clinicians are part of your team, right? Now, what I would say about that is have a clinician that sees you as part of their team is really important. Everyone has a role. Um, whether it's on a sports team, I'm a shooter, or for me, I love to shoot, but I love to rebound the hell out of anything I could do, right? And realizing what you really are good at, right? Um, So, but I think at the end of the day, um, when it comes to that fourth quarter, that fourth overtime, um, your coach can't do it for you. 
You know, you have to rely on yourself to make those decisions and understand, I got to get me through. My team's going to help me, but my team can't do it for me either, right? So first and foremost, I would say, um, starting with that belief in yourself and building that resilience and understanding that I can, that I can mentality, not the I can't, right? And if we rely wholly on clinical impact on chronic disease, it becomes less about what I can do, more about what my clinician can do. And what the clinician do can do is 5% of the rest of your life, how many time you spend time in the doctor's office. The rest of the time, you're on your own. So what are the things I can do in my own day-to-day life to impact my disease? There's a lot of things you can do. The other thing is the, we talked a lot about the value of a team. And there are a lot of ways to set up your team as a circle of care, clinicians being one. But you need, whether it's a caregiver, a friend, or there are professionally engaged people, you need to build a team that you're comfortable with, that you can trust. Trust is so important in those relationships. Just like on the court where if I leave my man on a defense, i got to know that my teammate's going to come over um, and support me and, and my defender, you know, and so that that so that my person doesn't get a shot in. You have to have that trust that that team is going to work together, right, to pick each other up. Um, The other thing is, we talked earlier, is knowing your opponent. So when it comes to disease, a lot of times, again, we rely so much on our clinicians to know the disease. There's so many great resources. You've got to find the right resources, right? And part of what I do is try to help people connect with what I can do with understanding the disease to say not just the clinical aspects, but what are the things that impact Um, stress, because we know stress are a lot of things. You can eat great foods, you can do exercise all you want, but if you're in a highly stressful environment all the time, which a lot of people with with any kind of disease are, a lot of these nutrients aren't going to be absorbed. You're going to be wearing yourself out more and causing the cycle of stress and the impact on your immune system. Does that make sense? So helping people connect those dots between you know, what they can do, what their clinicians are doing, what all the team is doing, but what I can do day to day to impact my health. That helps me have more confidence that I'm doing something, right? And that builds the resilience. And I keep on going back. It's really resonated with me what you talked about with, you know, if you feel like, you know, you've taken four or five shots and you're just not making your shot, there are other things you can do. And you, right. can, you can be tougher on defense. You can go for the rebounds. And there are so many different ways. This is now for the caregiving team yep. that you can have an impact if you feel you're not having an impact in, in one way. Coming back to your family, because I, I always feel empowered when you, t- when you talk to me about this stuff, and I, I really feel energized. You know, so you've got your son now who's, mm-hmm. who's struggling with this condition, cancer-free right now, yes. correct? Yes, And has not had cancer. No, has and not. And so it's just one of those things you need to stay on top of. Yes. Some people would walk around stressed out as a mother, mm-hmm. stressed out every day, you learned how to compartmentalize somehow, even going back to the student-athlete compartmentalization. And you've retained your sense of humor. You know, your son has the benefit of having a mother and a father who have a sense of humor, mm-hmm. which is probably critical. But tell me what else you've done that you think makes a difference in his life that can translate or that empowers him, mm-hmm. that can translate to other people, both with rare diseases, and I think I think most of the people listening today, even if they're perfectly healthy, right. there's some issue in your life mm-hmm. that can feel debilitating at times. With my son specifically, the one with um, back with Wiedemann, um, he's six years old, and um, what I've been very careful, or I guess I would say very intentional about, is when it's age as it's age appropriate for him to take the lead role in his own care. Um, So in a completely unrelated situation, he happens to have um, a challenge with his vision. It's unrelated um, to his, but he's had to wear patches on his eye. And a lot of times people say, how do you get him to patch on, you know, how do you keep that patch on his eye? Now, not every child is going to do this, but every time we go into the eye doctor, I let him take the lead. I let him come up with, I help him come up with the questions, and now he asks his own questions of the doctor. Um, He takes ownership of putting the patch on his eye, and we reinforce that, wow, you're doing a really good job. And I think that rather than, and what I've seen in a lot of situations with people with a child that's sick in some way, we're very intentional, and it's, it's, it's just the way we operate. A lot of times we tend to be very protective of the child that has the health issue, right? But what happens is, as much as we're trying to help that child, a lot of times we're creating a situation where they need others for them to do what they need to do. 
We're not allowing them to build their own resilience. We're not allowing them to fail. We're so concerned about them failing that we don't allow them to build their own self-confidence. And you have you can only learn strength and humor through learning how to deal with struggle. And I think that's something that has been important to me, not just with my child that has health condition, but I think that's something that I've, I've been learning about. And you know, podcast things are out there about the ability for parents to allow our children to sit in their struggle for growth. And I think that when you have a compromised health condition, it's almost, just like the fourth quarter, everything is heightened, everything's more acute, your training, all those things come together. It's like you're tired, but you know, you're your team, you're relying on your ability, all those things are heightened. In a situation with a child who has a health condition, it's almost more heightened in that situation that they need that resilience, right? And also, another dynamic that I see with families with a child that has a health condition is that the other siblings become almost uh, frustrated with that other sibling. It creates a dysfunctional dynamic in the family unit. When the family unit, the team of the family needs to be working with each other to support each other. So we have to be careful and intentional about um, how we empower our children, allow them to sit and struggle, but also create the dynamics in a family setting that are supportive of growth and life promoting versus he gets all the attention and why does he get to go, you know, those kinds of things, if that makes sense. Or for my own son, um, he had a surgery that uh, basically he was born with like a sack on the outside of his body. And so he actually doesn't have a traditional belly button. It sounds very strange to say, um, but we joke about him having a designer belly button because the doctor had to create one for him. Elijah didn't know that he had a different belly button. He would just brag that he had the biggest belly button in the family. And we all celebrated that. Now, he wasn't old enough to understand that we had to put his insides back in his belly, (laughs) you know? Again, there's that humor. People are really uncomfortable, I'm sure, at this point. But for me, it was, yeah, that's right, buddy. You have the biggest belly button. You have the coolest belly button, right? And so when other kids say on the playground, because he likes to scratch his belly, he don't have a belly button. He's like, what? He doesn't understand that. The other thing I will say, too, is this is just my my love and my passion. I can't help it. Um, but I think that, you know, I, I've, I try to, as much as possible, st- I think staying in touch with a community of people that is experiencing similar things, whether it's for caregivers or patients, that's really critical. But I also think in realizing when that's healthy and when it's not healthy, um, because what happens is you talk about not that there's not a reason to be a squeaky wheel, but a lot of times in patient groups and patient settings and social media is a tremendous resource, but also reminding yourself of when that becomes too distracting, or you have people that all they want to focus on is the negative. And not to say there's not a lot of negative there, but if all we're doing is talking about the negative and that's all we ever hear, I think that can be distracting and and, and, stru- and cause you to struggle, right? I think surrounding yourself with a balance of that is really important. Because I know for me, with my son that has uh, this condition, um, and he's, he's doing extremely well, um, but I could be sitting around, to your point, waiting for him to get some sort of cancer. And there are a lot of parents on these settings that would just think about that. How do you get by every, how do you, how do you do this? And the way I look at it is, and not to say that I want everyone to have had the experience of having lost another son or, or a child in that way, but the way I look at it is, you know what? If it happens, if we get a, if we see a tumor and it's something that's going to, and unfortunately we know that the, an offense is a good defense in this case. That's why we have every three months ultrasound. That's a protocol for this disease until he's 10. And after that, the, the chances are greatly reduced. But for me, if we get a tumor, you know what? He's not dead yet. And you know what? I've experienced that. And anything short of that, there's a lot we can do. You know, we know how to treat cancer. We didn't know how to address respiratory distress and pneumonia with my son that passed. But with cancer, we know how to treat it as long as we get early enough. And that's what I can control. I can't control these other things. I think it's recognizing where you can control things and where you can't. That makes sense. I have to give a lot of credit to my husband as well. We're a team. So here's what I'm thinking as, as we finish our conversation. Most of us do not know, do not have a personal connection with people who are in this rare disease world. Mm -hmm. And yet, listening to you now, both on basketball and on handling uh, family members or people you care about or others with rare diseases, Mm -hmm. I've already learned some things that I might be able to apply to my own life, even though I am not in that world. 
And I'm just thinking what an opportunity it would be for people to, you know, for the general population to get more exposed Mm -hmm. to how people are effectively, as effectively as possible, dealing with rare disorders uh, and the tools that 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 requires and how that can be applied to everybody's life. Because everything you've said to me Mm -hmm. resonates on some level in terms of just the basic everyday challenges that we all face. Right. Any th- any thoughts on how to connect yeah. connect connect those, those dots? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, no, I think um, for me, I'm just. I, I think that I'm always looking f- for the way to connect the dots, and um, in terms of people, whether or not you have an illness, a lot of what I'm talking about is as much prevention as it is um, stopping the, uh, or, or at least making the most out of living with something that you have, right? So a lot of what I'm talking about is mentality, is having the right mindset, the empowered mindset. And that applies no matter if you're sick or not. But I would argue that if you're already compromised with a health condition, the premium on getting that in check is even more important. So, so final, final question. You've, you've experienced all the way through four over times, mm-hmm. you lost that when you remembered the score. It clearly, mm-hmm. left an impression. Oh, yeah, you don't forget that. <laughs> <laughs> so two Hail Marys, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, final question for those people who feel at this moment like they're going into a fifth overtime mm-hmm. in life. Mm-hmm. What do you say to them? You're worth it. So you're worth it. That's one thing that just comes to me, and. You can do it. Carrie Kaufman, thank you for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes. Or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the weekly episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my editor, Brian Morris. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious.